0: Hello everyone, this is Tony and uh, today we have a special episode for you, a special Saturday episode of the Ask Pastor John podcast. Uh, It's a celebration of sorts. After a production delay and a couple of stops and starts, John Piper's new book, Providence, is now in stock. It's available and shipping from Westminster Books, Amazon, and other retailers. Uh, If you pre-ordered the 700-page book, you might already have it in hand. But to mark today as the official launch date, we're releasing the following long-form episode of the podcast. This is uh, an interview with Pastor John on the book. The conversation is 85 minutes long. It's led by Dr. Joe Rigney, who serves as Professor of Theology and Literature and the President-Elect of Bethlehem College and Seminary. He put the questions to Pastor John, uh, who serves as the Chancellor of Bethlehem College and Seminary. Here now is their conversation.
1: Hi, I'm Joe Rigney, a Professor of Theology and Literature at Bethlehem College and Seminary. I'm here with John Piper, Lead Teacher at Desiring God and Chancellor of Bethlehem College and Seminary. And we're here to talk about John's book, Providence. John, welcome.
2: Thanks so much for doing it. I'm eager to get into it.
1: <laughs> Me too. You are 40 plus years into ministry. You've been preaching and teaching uh, you've written over 50 books, and now at this point in your uh, in your ministry, you write a 700-page book on Providence. Why that book? Why now?
2: Yeah, especially when nobody reads 700-page <laughs> books. Um, I'm very much aware of that, although I, I try to persuade myself that People who influence other people might read 700-page books. And uh, another reason why a 700-page book right now might not be a mistake is that the reason there's 700 pages is because there's 3,000 Bible references. Did you know that?
1: I didn't. I, <laughs> there were a lot. When I read through the book, there were just covered.
2: It, it, I haven't counted the index pages, but it will be long. In other words... Uh, People who don't read the book, and there'll be lots of them, and that's fine because you can pick out pieces. They'll put it on the shelf, and they'll know that book is dense with Bible. And if I take it down and go to the index, I might find the text I'm puzzled about in the index and go and find out. But that's probably not what you asked. The the reason is for decades I have said I want want to write a big book on sovereignty. That's what I've said all these years. To, to pull all the pieces together because ever since my my second book, The Justification of God, way back in the early 80s, I wrote that. that that's one of the reasons I'm in the pastorate is because I wrote that book on Romans 9 and God said, get up there and proclaim it and don't just analyze it. So ever since those early books, I've said, I need to just pull all the Bible together. So I've, I've never written a whole Bible, anything. It, it's always been thematic with jumping around in the Bible. And this is an effort to go from Genesis to Revelation twice and uh, get at the providence of of God because it's under everything I've ever written. It's the way I've written it, the goal of everything mm-hmm. I've ever written. And so it feels um, climactic. I, like I could, if I died before this interview was over, I would say, Fine. <laughs> I did it! I, I did it! I I got the big book done. Everything else is overflow after that. So, I, it started. I mean, I started the actual writing when I was seventy-two. I'm seventy-four now. It finished. So it took a couple of years, and it felt like if I put this off any longer because I'm not ready, it'll never it'll never get done. And I I took this uh, blue paperback NASB twenty years ago, and just read it through, marking it in blue if it looked like sovereignty, uh-huh. yellow if it looked like a problem for sovereignty. And when I, when I was done, it was a really blue Bible.
0: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: and I thought, okay, there's plenty to work with here. And then, oh, my, it, it, the method just went from there.
1: Yeah, so that, let's talk about that. How do you write a 700-page book? It's, it's, it's a vast book. It's, it's at least... I was going to say it's comprehensive, but I don't think anything humans do is ever comprehensive. No, no. But but it has a, um, it aspires to be more comprehensive than smaller books. So, how do you write a book like this?
2: Right. Well, the way I think is to put everything I say, in as much as I'm self conscious when I say it, through the grid of scripture. So I don't really want to say anything that claims any credibility that isn't warranted by the Bible. So that means I took that blue Bible, I handed it to the guys at Desiring God. I said, turn that into a a Word document for me, cut and paste, however you want to do it. And they, in due time, handed me a very thick, I don't know how many hundred space pages maybe, of just... Now, it's searchable, all right? So I set aside a 12-week summer, and I said, okay, here's my raw material. I've got 100 pages of text about Providence. Now what? How do you turn that into anything? And I went through, and I, I tagged them thematically. Mm. Mm. I just made up tags as I went along. That has to do with the death of a child. That has to do with the removal of a king. That has to do with the virgin birth. That has to do with the conversion of a sinner. And I created these tags. There were dozens and dozens of them. Now the tags are searchable. Mm-hmm. Okay? So you can immediately click and go and say, you know, election uh, sovereignty. And everything relating to election is going to jump out at the search. Right. So I created dozens and dozens, probably 60. Okay. 60 subcategories of Providence texts. Right. And I just stare at them. <laughs> I mean, this is this is when you quit, right? This is when you don't. <laughs> this is a bad this idea. This is why people don't write books. <laughs> right. is they, they get to this stage of conception, right. and they look at it and say, I have no idea what to do with yes. that mass, that mass material. But I just want to encourage people that if you push through those moments uh-huh. of impossibility, the Lord will give you light. So I, I grouped them. And once I get some categories. And I say, okay, the book will have a, probably a chapter on um, whether or not God controls fertility, whether or not God right. controls um, the kings and, and, yeah. uh, and nations, and yep. whether or not God controls whether you get sanctified or not. And and once those are in place, you just start writing. You don't know if you're writing the end of the book, the middle of the book, or the beginning of it. You just start writing. Right. And, and my what I've discovered over the years is that to, to write is to learn. To write is to discover. If, if I just stare at pages thinking, now what's the structure? What's the outline? It never happens. I have to start writing. And when I write, ideas become clearer for, okay, this will be two chapters, not one. This will be a part, not a chapter. This will be at the end, not the beginning. And that emerges through the writing.
1: Right. So then Paul says to Timothy, think over what I say, sovereignty, The Lord will give you insight for you is at least partly right. write what you think and the Lord will give you insight. It's
2: because for me, writing is thinking. Right. I mean, it's it's the best thinking. Reading is thinking if you read well, but reading is thinking more or less as uh, loosey-goosey as your brain is. Uh Writing doesn't let you be loosey-goosey. Not, you have to slow down so much you can see your foolishness as you put, put it <laughs> on, on paper. And so you correct exactly. You, you say that, that's really that an ambiguous word or that has a double meaning or whatever. And as you write it, clarity comes. And so that text, think over what I say, becomes for me, even my private journaling, write over what I say and the Lord will give you
1: understanding. So uh, Dan Fuller, your professor— wrote a big book called Unity of the Bible. It was kind of his magnum opus. It was his thing. So I read this book, and I think, if somebody asks, what's John Piper's magnum opus, people are probably going to say something like, well, Desiring God. That's, that got everything started. That was the, the one. But as I'm reading this book, it seems like this is, you're, you're really wanting this to be a decisive, lodestar, central book. Um, the number of times I'm reading your footnotes and you're pointing at other things you've written. Right? Is that how you think about this book? Is is this book a kind of the the if it's a if your if your ministry is a wheel, this is that hub, and then all the spokes come off of it?
2: Um it, yes. I think I think it's fair to say yes. Um, if somebody in a year from now, so the book is to come out in January twenty-one, twenty-twenty-one, um if in 2022 or between there and when I die, anybody asks me where could I go to get the fullest picture of what and how John Piper thinks about God and life and the Bible, where would I go? And I'd say, go to Providence. Uh, so yes, it's it's a sum. Like I said earlier, it's it's under everything, and it's it's the goal of everything. Like where is it, where are all the books going? Right. And, and what is underneath all the books? And the answer is providence.
1: Right. So as we, let's turn to the book and let's think through, um, throughout the book, you return again and again to the issue of assumptions. Okay, this is a major thing. You, you can't read through this book and not pick up. John Piper thinks a lot about our assumptions um, and how they influence the way that we read the Bible. So help us understand two things. One, why is it so important to be aware of our assumptions and two, why and how should we test them by the scriptures rather than impose them on the scriptures? Right. What, what are assumptions doing and why do they matter for us? Yeah.
2: Well, it might help instead of speaking in generalities to give an example. Okay. Um, the reason they're important to state a generality is that we tend to see things in the light of our assumptions and interpret them to fit our assumptions. Okay. We bring, all of us do this. It's not pointing our finger at anybody. It says all of us bring life experiences and conceptions of reality to what we experience in and outside books, in the Bible, and we tend to see what we see in connection with those assumptions, and that can give a meaning which might be helpful uh-huh. if it's a true assumption or hurtful, harmful, misleading if it's a wrong assumption. So that's why they're so important. They're, they tend to be controlling. For example, I mean, the reason it shows up probably so often is that the assumption that one must have free will, meaning self-determination, I would even say ultimate self-determination, one must have that in order to be held accountable before God is an assumption that I think millions of people bring to the Bible, which I don't share. I did once. Uh I assumed once that if I'm not decisively and ultimately the one, say, who at the moment of my conversion cast the deciding vote, I can't be held accountable. I'm a robot. You can't find that assumption in the Bible. So that gets to your second question. Right. All right. Is that a true or a false assumption? Yeah. One must have ultimate self-determination in order to be held accountable before God for the things that you do by your will. Is that true? And my approach is I want to, as best I can, test my assumptions by texts that push back. Right. I mean, some texts easily fit two assumptions, Uh go either way. Well, that's no help in citing which assumption. The texts that you have to come to terms with most are the texts that clearly say that assumption's right or that can't be right in view of this. Uh And that takes really serious humility because you might be wrong and you have to come to terms with your error or your fallibility And it takes, I think, significant give and take with other people who see things differently from you.
1: I remember when I was in college and um, some of your writings actually led me to question a number of my assumptions. And the method that I settled upon, I don't know why, Providence probably, for trying to to (laughs) adjudicate this was I, I, I printed off some of your articles, I think at the time, from Desiring God. And then I went and I tried to find the best that I could find online of an opposing view, so an Arminian view in this case. And I had your articles and I had those articles and I had my Bible. And then I would just sit there and I would look at the text that you would point to and I would then look at the text that they would Mm -hmm. point to Mm -hmm. and I would go and I would try to see which which one of these explanations is making the most sense of those verses. Mm -hmm. And I remember, um, this is the sort of thing that an 18-year-old thinks— uh, thinking, um, and this is going to take a really long time. I, 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 had a, I had a journal that was, you know, so I'm writing through, thinking through, and I'm thinking, I'm, I'm undertaking a very big thing. This is big. I'm thinking about God and how he relates to human beings. There's not a bigger question. And you'd convince me this is a major thing. So I'm thinking, this is a big question. This might take me the rest of my life to figure out which side. It might take or at least the rest of my college career. And I remember within a couple of weeks, just feeling like, oh, there's just no question. This is just Bible, 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 Bible that illuminates. And this is all assumptions yeah. about what the Bible must mean, given these assumptions. So so that resonates with me. So I was reading through the book and feeling like, I remember what it was like to have my assumptions yeah. uh, challenged yeah. uh, in that and, way.
2: And just to encourage folks, you remember those days. You didn't describe them as bleakly as I feel. the days that I remember, I remember... I was 22 years old, just beginning seminary, bumping into Dan Fuller, reading Jonathan Edwards, and watching my world dismantled. Hmm. I mean, it is not comfortable. Hmm. I remember going back from Jim Morgan's systematic theology class where he's rubbing my nose in Romans 9. Mm-hmm about election and, and the sovereignty of God. And I was, I was just a rabid free willer. You know, I'm the guy who held a pen in front of his face, dropped it on the floor and said, I, I did, did it, that. I did it, uh-huh. God didn't do that, I did that. And I would go back and I would put my, my face in my hands and I would cry. Mm-hmm. It was it was that distressing to watch things that I had just taken for granted for 22 years or 20 years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and whenever I could start thinking when I'm four, uh-huh. um, and so yes, absolutely to to test your assumptions to find them wanting uh, is a painful thing but oh the the joy and the liberty that comes once you make your way through and feel like I really believe now i 'm being honest
1: mm. with the book that 's good so let 's talk move from assumptions to definitions um, you You try to avoid. A lot of technical definitions in the book. You want this to be accessible. Even though it's 700 pages, it, it's very readable. It's, it's expositions of, of passages, but you do carefully define certain key terms. So maybe just talk for a minute about you, the book's called You said you want to write a book on sovereignty, and you wrote a book called Providence. Well, why Providence, not sovereignty?
2: Right. Um,
1: and how yeah, do you define it? How do you define Exactly.
2: Providence? For years and years, I, I never used the word Providence. It's not in the Bible, so I'm not inclined to use it. Of course, neither is sovereignty.
1: <laughs> That's right.
2: That's right. And neither is discipleship, and yeah. neither is counseling, and neither is. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I loved from age 23 to now the sovereignty of God. And as soon as I began to put my hand to the paper to account for. Uh, what sovereignty is, how it functions, where it's illustrated in the Bible, I realized I can't write meaningfully about this without talking about why God is doing what he's doing. The why question. Okay. You know, that had not put itself forward as what I would write about. That I wrote about that with God's passion for his glory, uh-huh. Right. Edwards and, and God's Passion for His Glory, the God is about magnifying God in the in the world. I've settled that issue. That's another book. And here I'm gonna write about He's got the right and power to do it. Right. And I realized that's gonna be a very odd book. It, it, it's gonna leave so many questions unanswered. So as soon as I began to unpack purpose, why do you do what you do? That became a third of the book. Uh-huh. And I realized, okay calling it sovereignty isn't really adequate anymore uh-huh. because sovereignty is, I mean, providence is purposeful sovereignty. That's my definition. Okay. If you have any a short definition, the difference between sovereignty and providence is that sovereignty is God's right and power to do as he pleases. And providence is this purposefully. Okay. So you have to talk about where he's going, what's it all about, why is he trying to, What's he trying to achieve in the world? And so that's my understanding of product. Okay,
1: uh, next word. You mentioned this one already, but free will. Um, you try to avoid a lot of technical discussions of this, yeah. but you, but you want to try to talk about good assumptions or good definitions and bad definitions. So maybe talk about the bad definition. You've already alluded to it, but maybe unpack it a little more. And then what's a better definition for that reality? Yeah, yeah.
2: Um, That's a sacred phrase in America, American evangelicalism in particular, free will, Um, and to challenge it is to get yourself into uh, trouble. But people seldom, I mean, ordinary run-of-the-mill people seldom pause and say, here's exactly what I mean. Mm -hmm. And that's why confusion is endlessly created as you argue back and forth whether free will or sovereignty... And it's because the definitions aren't given. So I, uh, I can point to a couple of major uh, believers in free will at the upper echelons of philosophical reflection who would embrace the definition I use. And I don't have a quirky definition. Right. Quirky definitions don't, don't help. help. Right. Um, and my definition is uh, the best way to talk about free will if you want to get to the nub of the issue as to whether we have it in conversion is ultimate self-determination. Okay. And sometimes I use the word decisive as well as ultimate. Uh, Ultimate sounds like way off in the distance Uh somewhere. Decisive means right now who's casting the deciding vote. So at the very moment, this is how I get at the nub of the issue of free will at the very Split second of my passing from unbelief to belief, dead to life, uh, not trusting God to trust in God, uh, not saved to saved, not born, but born again. At that decisive moment, is John Piper or God decisive? Right. Is he ultimately in control? And, and my answer is the Bible teaches quite apart from anybody's assumption that God is decisive at that moment. Therefore we don't have free will in that sense. Now, if people are going to go, then I'm a robot. I say, no, no, no. What what you mean by free will is my choices really matter. Mm -hmm. They really count. I'm really responsible. And I'm just nodding my head. Like you're nodding your head. Exactly. You do have that kind of will. And that's why you're responsible. And if they shake their head and say, well, how can my willing be real? Uh How can I be accountable in what I will and God be decisive in my choices? And my answer is, you don't need to know how. Right. You need to know, is it true? Is it true? And and I would, I mean, I spent 700 pages. And, uh, you know, one of the reasons this prince is kind of, for talking about providence in regard to, say, a pandemic or the death of a child or a child born with a disability or a mom dying at age 40 when she has four kids. The reason for talking about that is that if people see that in the Bible, it's remarkable how easily they tend to believe God saved me. Mm-hmm. He decisively saved me. I didn't save myself. I wasn't decisively in control because a lot of their opposition has fallen before something that really hurts.
1: So I think that's an important point. I want to dwell on it in a minute. Um, believing that something is true from the Bible and explaining how it is true. So in this case, how is it the case that God is purposefully sovereign in everything, exhaustively so. And yet I um, have a, I do what I want. It's a good definition of free will. That's one I typically use. Somebody asks, do you believe in free will? Do you mean, do I do what I want? I think absolutely I do what I want. It doesn't answer all the questions. But the inability to comprehensively reconcile how providence and whatever kind of free will I have Work together. I don't need to know that in order to say both are true, and I love them, right? Right. Okay. So, um, does that mean that you're willing to say that's a mystery? Do you think it's a mystery, or do you have explanation? Mean by mystery? Okay. Now we're going (laughs) to go more definition.
2: I mean, mean, that's not a joke because the Bible uses the term mystery in a pretty distinct way. The mystery of the kingdom is not. I have no idea what the kingdom is about. It means it's been concealed for generations, it is now revealed in Jesus Christ, and I preached the mystery of Christ, Paul says. So when I say you gotta define mystery, if but I know what you mean, and most people mean by mystery, is it's beyond present human comprehension. Yes. And in that sense, yes I'm willing to affirm mystery. And that's one of them. I have several I mean, there's lots of things I don't know, but I don't tend to call everything a mystery because that kind of cheapens the word. The things that really count, and the one you're pushing on is, you say, Piper, that our will will is real and our accountability is real and God is decisively in control of the will in all things at all times. I'm willing to say I cannot... Finally and decisively give an explanation that either satisfies me or I've not met anybody that explains how that can be right. the how question and that that I can't do it now doesn't mean it's not doable. Right. I mean Edwards went pretty far in distinguishing yep. the, the, the natural ability and the moral ability and I found that very very helpful. But, for, go ahead.
1: Yeah, but but that the point is, you don't have to embrace Edward's account of the will no. in order to embrace what you're trying to do in the
2: book. No, no, I, I very much want to be biblical rather than systematic. If I have to give up one, right? In other words, if I, I but I didn't say logical,
1: right? <laughs> we could go there.
2: I mean, I'm accused of being illogical, right? And I reject that. I believe logic is God's creation. I mean, it reflects God. Yep. He, he's, he, he doesn't commit the law of non-contradiction. He doesn't break that law. Uh, things can't be A and not A at the same time in the same way. God is a logical being. I don't think in saying that God governs the will and my will is accountable is illogical. It doesn't break any logical laws.
1: So one way, one way I've tried to put this um, like when I'm talking to our students here at Bethlehem is um, a major task in theology is putting the mystery in the right place. That's good. Um, And so, like you said, there's certain things. So doctrine of the Trinity, say, how is God three in one? How? How is God three in one? That he's three in one seems plain from text. How? We got all kinds of terms that we use to try to say the how. But there should be mystery there. How, How is Christ God and man? That's a mystery, hypostatic Union. And then here, the intersection of creator and creature and how creator governs creature in a way that preserves creaturely integrity and responsibility. Those are the places where mystery is to be expected and not dismissed. Or if I can't explain how, then I don't affirm either side. But we should expect mystery in those places, right?
2: Right. And, and getting it in the right place on this particular issue... Is challenging because people want to locate the mystery between, okay, I have free will, and God is sovereign, and I can't figure it out. And I said, that's not where the mystery lies. You don't have free will.
1: In the ultimate self-determining sense. Exactly. Right.
2: God governs your will. Now, your definition earlier, just go back and search, Yeah. when you
1: said, uh, I do what I want. I
2: do what I want. That, that's freedom to do, not freedom to will.
1: Uh, I, I will what I want.
2: Okay, that's not the same thing, and that that would be a good definition. You know I mean, want I, will, I want what I want. I will what I want means I'm going to trace it back to me. I'm tracing the the inclinations of my heart back, finally and ultimately to me. That's a little that's a little different than do what I want. Yeah,
1: I, I think part of what we mean is there's a sort of the spontaneous sense that. When I will, it's me willing. And I think we want to affirm, yes, you as a human being have an intellect and you have a will and you use them. Yep. And God is unique. So if I will something means John Piper didn't make me will it. Like you put a gun to my head, that would be some, some force or compulsion yep. being exercised. Yep. Or you tie yep. me to a chair so I can't stand up. Says Edwards, right? But... God's not like that. God's in a class by himself in relation to us. And so the mystery of how the creator relates in the mechanisms, like you couldn't diagram it on a whiteboard. Students have asked for that. And I say, you just, that's not the kind of question. So it's more important. I think this is what's so helpful about the book is to just hold before our eyes the number of ways that you get the affirmations and the um, celebrations, even of that providence alongside. You're absolutely responsible for your choices. And then the message is, don't let one true thing in the Bible cancel out another true thing in the Bible. Right. Don't let one text mute another text. Let them all stand, even if you can't explain at the ultimate level how.
2: Yep. And I think we become theologians. I mean, lay people can become serious, deep saints by letting the Bible be the Bible and year by year mulling over the seeming paradoxical things that you can't put together. And if you do that, you find that the roots get closer and closer. And one day you might say, you know, that's not as much of a paradox as I thought it was. Right. And you never get down there if you said uh, one of these can't be true.
1: Right. That, I, that, that experience of all of a sudden realizing there was a time when this felt like a really thorny thing. And now I can't explain to someone when they say, you know, so when they're like you were when, with the tears and the struggle, it's like, I know that there were times where I felt that. And then for whatever reason, it doesn't feel that way. There's just a kind of like the, the pressure's relieved. Uh, it's a really remarkable thing. All right, I want to turn uh, and I want us to talk about probably the major uh, objection to what you describe in the book as providence, which is evil. And I want us to talk about it in kind of different stages. And so let's start with natural evil. So by, by natural evil, I mean things like cancer, sickness, barrenness, all of which you treat in detail in the book. And you argue all of these are governed by God's good providence. So... Maybe take us to some texts, if you've got some off the top of your head, for why you think that, so that, that natural evils are governed by prov- providence. And why is that good news and not terrifying news?
2: It is terrifying news in two senses. Uh, one, if you're not a believer and God is totally in charge and He's sovereign and you're against Him, you should be terrified. Um, second, if I were told tonight by the Lord Jesus, you're going to be burned at the stake for your faith, I'd be terrified. So I don't want to glibly say, oh, if you've got a providence figured out, you don't have to be terrified of anything. You don't have to be afraid. That's not true. Um, but back to your main question, why would I say that all natural evil or all natural phenomena are governed by God? And the answer is because... In a hundred places in the Bible, it says they are. Um, Jesus said, not a bird falls from the sky apart from your father. When Job was stricken with boils, it said Satan did it. Or when the children died, it said the wind did it. And in both cases, Job attributed it ultimately to God the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away blessed be the name of the Lord says to his wife shall receive good at the hand of the Lord and not evil and so he's he's chalking up natural evils to God's ultimate all of the plagues in the Old Testament that God sends are of God frogs obey God gnats obey God Uh, locusts obey God worms in Jonah obey God fish obey God This is the most important probably because of how many people die in floods and storms every year. Jesus says, peace, be still, and the winds and the waves obey him. I've never heard anybody tell me today how Jesus reigning in heaven with resurrection power and omnipotence can't say to a tsunami moving towards the Indian coast where it's going to take out 200,000 people. He can't do anything about it. He can't say, tsunami, be still. If he can't say, tsunami, be still, he's not the same yesterday, today, and forever. So texts like that are pervasive in the Bible. Jesus is sovereign over disease. He heals it. Jesus is sovereign over demons. Jesus is sovereign over death. Jesus is sovereign over uh, everything that is hurtful to man. And he delivers them or not.
1: So, So you mentioned the Job story. Why not say in a, in a place like that, where Satan is clearly active? Um, you know, God tells Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. That's what God says to the devil. So, why not say that Satan is responsible? Satan's the one who sent the Chaldeans upon Job's flocks and sent that wind that knocked down the house and sent the boils that afflicted Job. So there's all of these evils, and God says, s- it, it's Satan. And so why not, why not s- stop there? Why not say it's, it's Satan who did it? Why go to God?
2: Yeah, well, let's make sure. I mean, I thought you were going to ask, why not say Satan did it? And I was going to say, we should. Okay. But you said, why should we stop there? So let's deal with both of those. Okay. Maybe it's a danger for people like me. To diminish the significance of secondary causes. I don't want to. The Bible doesn't. When Jesus healed the woman, he said Satan had bent her over for 18 years. Pure and simple. He didn't say God, he said Satan has bent her over and she can't straighten up for 18 years. That's the work of Satan. Now, he didn't say God didn't do it, but he said Satan. So we should, we should, wherever Satan is manifest, and we discern that from the Bible especially, he's very busy, we should hate him and strive against him with God's power. So that is fixed. Secondary causes, whether human or demonic or natural, should be affirmed and dealt with. That's why we want a vaccine in the pandemic right now. We cry, God have mercy. We know somebody, you and I know somebody who's close to death right now at Hinton County with COVID and we know God could supernaturally do that but they just started giving him some intervening stuff this afternoon. We want that to work too. Secondary causes really matter. We love them, they're a gift of God. Now, why not just stop there? And the reason is because we're not dualists. We don't want to say, well, there are two forces in the world. There's Satan and there's God. And it's it's a great warfare theology going on here. And we'll see who wins in the end. I don't want to say to my kids, I don't want to say to myself or my church, um, Satan really does have the upper hand. And God is bound. Can't do anything about it. And I don't just say that. Uh, logically, systematically, inferentially, like it just has to be that way because God is God. I think that's true. But that doesn't really cut it as much as, give me some texts. And the text is that Satan in verse 10 of chapter 2 struck Job with boils. It says it. Satan struck him. Doesn't say that about his kids leaves that kind of open. The wind struck the kids. Right. But Satan struck him with the boils. When those boils from the top of his head, that's the wickedness of Satan. Satan making the saint suffer. Satan loves it. He hates Christians or saints. And, then Job, and so his wife says, just curse God and die. Because God is just letting Satan rule. And Job says, so, so we, shall we receive good at the hand of the Lord and not evil? Meaning Job would not have it. And, and the writer of the book, I mean, you could say that's bad theology. Right. There's, yeah, there's a lot of bad theology yeah, yeah, in Job. Job, and that's part of it. But when you get to chapter 42, verse 11, they comfort Job for all the evil that the Lord oh. had brought upon him. That's what 42:11 says. It's amazing how many commentaries pass over that verse. It's probably the most important verse in the book. Right. Satan's
1: totally gone at that. I mean, he was there. We should acknowledge it by the end. He's not the...
2: And the inspired writer is the one who is saying this. And James, New Testament, chapter 5, verse 11 says, Behold the purpose of the Lord, how he's compassionate and merciful. It was all going there, and Satan was God's lackey. He was God's lackey. And I I want people out there to know... I'm I'm looking out there because this is where I used to preach. (laughs) I want them to know that Satan is real. And according to Revelation 2.10, he can throw you in prison and kill you. And you should get in his face and say, make my day. Which is what Jesus did in the the last hours of his life in Gethsemane, when they came to get him and the rioters, um, Jesus says, this is your hour and the power of darkness. I love that. One hour have me you're on a leash have me and god is ordaining that satan enter into judas judas sells him for 30 pieces fulfills scripture hands him over gets him killed for millions of salvation and raises him from the dead so one hour you get and you kill yourself satan
1: what an idiot so so with that, wouldn't some people want to say there, okay, I get, I get what you're saying, Piper, but um, Satan has these evil purposes. He wants to destroy us. He wants to steal, kill, destroy. Um, and God is very resourceful. And so Satan means it for evil and God uses it for good. You talk about this in the book and, and, and it's, it's in the passage you're discussing um, the Joseph story uh, about how his brothers meant. So why, why, why is it not enough to say, What Satan means for evil, God uses for good.
2: Right. One reason is because that text, chapter 50, verse 20 of Genesis, which sums up the story uh, when Joseph says to his brothers who are scared to death that he's going to take out revenge on them, he said, uh, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Same word in Hebrew, meant, meant not meant used. So you can't say, oh, we've got a text here that says humans or Satan means evil, but God only uses evil. He doesn't ever will that it come to pass. This is not true. And there are many, many texts to that that effect. So that text won't work for use and neither will the most important event in the world, namely the death of Jesus where Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28 says, Herod and Pilate and, and the soldiers and the crowds were gathered together to do what your plan and your hand had predestined to take place. The worst sin in the history of the world was predestined to take place by God. He didn't just use the death of Jesus. He planned the death of Jesus, which which really, Joe, gets to the heart of the matter why I can get worked up about people who deny the sovereignty of God because I would have no gospel without it. If 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 God did not will to bruise his son 700 years before in Isaiah or millions of years before in eternity, um, if he didn't do that, there is no gospel. If, if Jesus' death was the work of Satan or the work of random fate or the work of the conspiracy of the Romans— and God just picked up the pieces afterwards. He's not the God of, of the gospel. And so I'm lost. I, my sin is, has no forgiveness.
1: And this is a place, again, where we want to, you, you, you don't underline, believing that it's true is different than believing how, how you know, so that, that, there's, a, there's a part of people, I think, at that moment say, but explain how it could be that, that Satan does it and God does it. And this is another place where we're just going to say, you don't have to know how. You need to believe that because that, the Bible is pressing you to believe both that the, that in Job's case, Satan and the Chaldeans and the wind and the, all of that are in work. And behind it is the merciful and compassionate hand of God. And so also with Christ and therefore so also with
2: everything. Yeah, yeah. Just one more text so that people feel the force of this for their own personal lives. So Paul in... Second Corinthians 12 has these revelations of being in heaven, and they are so unspeakably great that God foresees the possibility that this could make his ego go bonkers and become conceited and proud. And so it says, he gave him a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, that he might not be conceited. Now, Satan is not in the business of keeping people from being deceited, conceited. (laughs) God is. This is God's thorn, and Satan is used to do it. So this is God using Satan to sanctify Paul, must gall Satan to be used in that way. So that he does it is clear from many texts if people stumble over, okay, how does the agency of Satan and the superintending agency of God actually work and you say, well, just keep reading, keep reading. You may see clues that I haven't even seen, but don't give up the sovereignty of God. Don't give up the agency of Satan. Let the Bible be the Bible.
1: Right, right. Um, it's one of the, so you you've, we've gone to Job and we've gone to, to Christ um, But I think it's like there's there's a way, uh, and I think this is one of the things that struck me in the book, is the the places where you lingered to try to make the gravity. The Bible is going to linger in these places, and so you wanted to linger in these places. um, And say, God sees to it. That's one of the ways you define providence is God sees to it that the greatest horrors in the world happen. Which includes the slaughter of children, includes includes cannibalism, mothers cannibalizing their children. Um, and there's a part of me that just wants to say, John Piper, do you do you really mean that? Like like there's a way of like staring the horrors of that in the face and saying, I don't know how, but God is here too. I'm just asking, like, like, when you, when you, like, there's a weightiness to the book in those chapters, right? Um, when you get to, I mean, that's, they're about two thirds, three quarters of the way there, and you just kind of push pause. You don't, you're not content to say, he governs the heavens and he governs the way, wind and the waves. You, you go to the most horrible things and you say, we need to see this. So what, what do you see in those places when, when, or, or maybe, maybe the question is, when you, see providence and the horrors like that, what happens for John Piper?
2: Well, let me, let me get there uh, indirectly for how the Lord prepares the heart of John Piper. I remember hearing R.C. Sproul respond one time to somebody who had cataloged all of the capital crimes in the law of the Old Testament. I forget how many, several dozen. Why are there so many capital crimes, he says to Sproul. Sproul said, mercy, because they were all capital crimes at the beginning. There isn't anything but capital crimes. Now, so you start with the fall, and either we're just going to give up on Christianity and the Bible entirely, or come to terms with the fact that when Adam fell, God consigned everyone to destruction. So he owes nobody anything. God can do me no wrong, no matter how much I suffer. And then you move to the flood. Nice story for kids, right? Right. How many millions of people drowned? Most of them probably under five. Eight people get rescued, and the entire world drowns. 185,000 soldiers in one night. That means 185,000 widows, probably, and 500,000 orphans. The angel of the Lord killed them all. You just walk right through the Bible. Either we give up the Bible, or, or we... I'm talking about the effects. So those, those texts just flatten me. They just flatten me and say, my tendency to rebel against you, Lord, is clearly owing to something amiss in my soul. I'm not seeing things the way you see them if I find fault with you for the fall and the effect it has on humanity. And I realize I'm just so, self-exalting. So that's the preparation of, over time, the Lord has just caused me to say, it's either the Bible or throw it all away. Now, when I come to the horrors, I say, shall not the judge of all the earth do right And I gather around me texts of, I was just walking over here tonight saying, the Lord is good to those who call upon him. He's good. The Lord is wise. The Lord is merciful. The Lord, all the works of the Lord are righteous. All the works of the Lord are just. I preach the justice of God, the righteousness of God, the goodness of God, the mercy of God. And I realize that Every day in this world, billions and billions and billions of people are experiencing mercy from God with every breath they take, every plane that lands, every train that stays on the track, every car that passes at four feet, 60 miles an hour and doesn't crash. Every one of those are gift, 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 gift. Mercy and goodness everywhere along with the horrors in the world. And I'm I'm like Sarah Edwards when Jonathan died at age fifty. Three was it? Um, born in 1703, died 1758, before his birthday. But anyway, he dies uh, because the, 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 his throat swelled up. He couldn't couldn't swallow, and he was only halfway through his well three fourths of the way through his life. And she she says, "We put our hands on our mouth, and we kiss the rod. That's the kind of submission I want." So. Here, just one illustration. I'm listening to a book right now, and it drew attention to the fact that Adam Smith, the economist um, from centuries century ago, two centuries ago, um, drew attention to the fact that human beings are like this. If today we heard that China had an earthquake and it opened the earth and swallowed 100 million people, the whole, at that time, the, the whole... Country Swallowed up, covered over, they are no more. And the news came to America. China is no more. 100 million people just went underground, dead. He said, within a day, most of us would be able to sleep through the night, but not if our finger was cut off. I mean, stories like that, comments like that say, That's true. And that sounds really bad to me. I mean, bad about me. I don't have the capacity to feel um, the horrors that you're talking about. So that I think is legitimate for a critic to say to me, okay, you you talk about that in your nice, you're nice, you're dressed, you're warm, you're, you're well fed, you're healthy, you've got a pension, blah, blah, blah. Wait till you actually have to look it in the face. And and my answer to that is, I pray God will grant me the grace to be submissive to his will and weep with those who weep and trust the sovereignty of God. You
1: know that, when I get into the pastoral issue then, that's, that's a good transition there for... Um, What would you say to someone who hears, reads what you're writing and about the horrors and says, if God does that, if God, if God governs and God, if he sees to it that fill in the blank on whatever the horror is. And it might be the big global ones or it might be the deeply personal one. Then they say, I don't know how to come to him for comfort. This is a little bit. There's there's a, there's a way in which this is the person who really wants to come to God for comfort, but the goodness and loving kindness of God and the providence of God feel like they pull in such opposite uh, directions. Um, and so they, they see what the Bible says about God's all-pervasive providence, but they're unable to um, really emotionally hold it together with God's deep love and goodness. How, how do you help someone in that in that position? Because I imagine somebody's going to be watching the video and who, if they were to read the book, will just see the text after text and say, I don't know how to answer any of that, but I don't know what to do now and I don't feel like I can come to God.
2: Yeah, yeah. I'd I, I tell him you know, there's a professor at Petton College and Seminary named Joe Rigney... <laughs> And he teaches literature, among other things, and has a real good sense of the power of story in people's lives and the precious value of heroes who combine virtues that usually are considered distinct and separate and torn apart in our culture. And what we need are some magnificent human being models who over here on the one side are vicious in their justice and over here are tender with a child. I and mean, We don't have to go to fiction. I mean, they're all over the place. Right. And and we don't have many models. Maybe our fathers were not like that. I, I think one of the reasons I probably believe what I believe is because I I was terrified at the fire in my father's eyes and there wasn't a funnier and happier man on the planet than my father. I live with the paradox of, of, of the Bible at home. Most people don't have that that, that privilege. So, but we have Jesus. And if you just read through the whole Gospels over and over again, don't, isn't that what you see? I mean, Jesus is severe with his enemies and can be so blunt with people. You say, whoa, how that doesn't feel tender at all. And other times, so tender so kind, so patient, so merciful. And so if you have one person pulling together what feels so at odds, that personal model, whether it's Jesus in the Gospels or whether it's some model a hero in fiction, you say, it really is possible that God would be approachable, tender, loving, Kind, merciful, patient with me, and I think, and that He be sovereign, and, and I think the cross is at the center of history because it should be at the at the center of our lives. I mean, Paul probably the most I don't know maybe not but I was going to say the most important sentence he said was scarcely for a good man will one. Do. Righteous man, will one die? But perhaps for a good man, one might dare to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we yet sinners, Christ died for us. So the, the the giving of His Son to have us for His friend, His the bride for His Son, His Son predestined unto sonship before the foundation. That is what you got to preach to people who are feeling. There's no way this sovereign God could be approachable. No way he could be tender or kind or patient. And you want to say, yes, he can be. Yes, he can be. And let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about the death of Jesus. Let me tell you about the father who doesn't spare his son.
1: So maybe shift the question to pastors and and maybe um, the use of a book like this might be. You said not everybody would read it, but that hopefully people— uh, who want to influence others might sit and soak in it and and pastors would be at the top of that list um, How should pastors think about bringing the biblical truth about providence to bear in in their ministries and i 'm thinking in particular about just the the wisdom issues that go into it uh, when it comes to um, preaching it, counseling with it, leaning on it so just you've been a pastor for. For 40 years and so what how do you how should they think about a, a book like this and the truth that it embodies and what should they do with it in a, in a ministry
2: Yeah, I think they should say up front to their people that um, he's going to be patient with them as they come along especially when it comes to the issues of sovereignty and free will or sovereignty and suffering um, because he's going to say some things that are going to be mind-boggling to people, and he that he, sh- he should create a space in his church where they can grow into that. That's, that's the first thing.
1: And, and what you mean by that is that there's a way that you could wield a truth as a almost as a weapon.
2: Yeah, as if you don't even give a hoot whether they believe it or not. Right. You know, and and we're pastors. Those are sheep, and they're hungry, and they want life-giving food and there's an taste in this <laughs> that way and and you need to help them say you know you can grow into this taste <laughs> like i haven't yet grown into certain tastes but <laughs> i have grown into some tastes.
1: what were you gonna say I was, I was gonna say that there's a way in which um so with the goodness question i can i don't know how to come to god for comfort in his goodness and love and believe that he's sovereign one of the things i thought would be um to tell someone who is in that position, um, cling to the goodness and don't shut the door on the providence. Even if you can't love the providence, don't just reject it, right? So so I, I want to kind of direct them to the goodness of God. And, and for me, that would, that would effectively be an act of faith on my part as the pastor that, Lord, you're going to have to help them see this, love it, um, embrace it, treasure it. I can't make that happen. And so what I can do is give that space and and exhort them, encourage them. He's good. He's good. He's good. He loves you. He's good. Cling to him. And just in clinging to him, don't slam the door on providence is that my thinking about that
2: yes and i would say the reverse is true too if they've got a good handle on the sovereignty of god and and they are are doubtful about the goodness i mean either way whether whether you're clear on goodness Mm -hmm. and you love it but you doubt that providence thing or you love this certain personalities will love the providence they're not right they don't care much about whether god is good or not that's terrible we should I, i think we're inviting people to live in tension and to pray earnestly. So, yes, I like the uh, don't shut the door on the aspect of God that seems least clear to you. But love the book, not that red one, <laughs> the black one. Love this book and put it on top of the red one there so that you keep things straight. But back, back to your question, it is so crucial. This is what I loved about being a pastor as opposed to, say, a conference speaker A pastor gets to week in and week out build a mindset in his people so that 10 years from now, when the stillbirth happens and you're there and this baby lives two hours or they know he's dead three months before she gives birth and she's got to go through labor to deliver a dead baby. They've heard you talk about this for 10 years. You hardly need to say a word because they've come to love God's good sovereignty. They know this is a work of God ultimately, and that he'll use that very sovereignty to see them through. So a lot, how a pastor relates to people depends so much on on their shared experience, shared theology, shared life together, so that he, you know, I've said to Tom Steller, whom I've worked with for 40 years now, I said along the way, you know, Tom, one of the greatest things about, visiting the other one when he's dying i'll probably die first so when you visit me mm-hmm. we won't have to say anything right we won't have to say anything you know everything i know tom i know everything you know about god we've taught each other for 40 years it'll all be there one touch will communicate a ton of theology and and to the degree that that's true of people mm-hmm. You don't need to preach. And in fact, preaching in the moment of pain is probably the least effective thing. So I, I would say you do, you walk into the the setting. You've been called. It's a crisis. Horrible losses happen. You show up. What you do? First thing you, you, you say is you hug. I, mean, I did this for Roland Erickson. His son, 25 years old, dies totally unexpected in heart surgery. He calls me, we just lost David. And I run over to the hospital down here. It's about a five-minute walk from my house. And I walk in. And I just grab him and sob on his shoulder and and say, "I'm so sorry. I'm so so sorry." And then you step back and you try to discern the moment. Silence now, just silence for the next half hour, or does he does he want a word? Does he want encouragement? And you just plead for wisdom from the Lord as to whether they're they're hungry for some stabilizing word like. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord brings him out of them all. Or God reigns. He's sovereign. God is our refuge.
1: I think about that that, that story reminds me just of of Jesus. Here's a purposeful providence moment, right? With delaying. Lazarus is sick. Come down. I'm going to wait because I love him. I'm going to wait. And then when he goes down, it doesn't keep him from... Grabbing and hugging and, and weeping at the tomb five minutes before he says death let him go, um, and so I think that there's ways in which Jesus can model model for us. There's a purposeful providence that Jesus has just got, and and yet that doesn't it doesn't keep him from deeply feeling the tragedy. No,
2: no, um, no, no. no. It, we, we we must disabuse people of the notion that deep confidence in the good purposes of God in all suffering means you shouldn't cry. You shouldn't feel pain. Pain is is not a reflection of unbelief. Doubt and anger at God, that's a reflection of unbelief. But pain at loss is just pain. And what you do when you feel pain is cry. And so when my mother was killed, what the Lord taught me in those two hours of weeping when I got that phone call at age 28 was that Christians actually can experience 2 Corinthians 6.10, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. As I knelt there, weeping like I haven't wept since. I really, I haven't cried like that since I was 28. I'm 74. And I hadn't cried like that before. I'd never gone through anything like that. And for those two hours, I'm crying, kneeling by my bed. And inside, I'm thinking of reason after reason why God has been good to me in her. You know, I had her so long. She was a great mom. She died quickly without suffering. She's in heaven with Jesus. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I'm just crying my eyes out. So we, we gotta we gotta teach men and women that you do, don't draw stupid conclusions from sovereignty or providence that are not biblical and not experientially valid. And and one of those would be well, if you if you really trust God and God is good and He was behind this horrible thing, then you're not going to weep at it because God has good purposes in it. That's just Contrary to Bible, contrary to real life, valid, good experience.
1: Um, man, there's so many other directions we could go. You have a, a, a large section on the providence in personal salvation and causing us to be born again. But I want to explore a little bit more providence in the life of John Piper. You just mentioned um, the death of your mother in December 1974. Um But how how does providence impact you, um, kind of on a daily basis? And and the kind of things I have in mind are how you think about perseverance, right? You're within, you're you're, you're within earshot. We all might be, but you, but you for sure are uh, of glory. Um, How do you think about planning? How do you think about prayer? And you go all kinds of directions, prayer for yourself, prayer for others, prayer for the lost. So for you personally, a book like this could feel, I, I was a, maybe a little surprised. There, there are some anecdotes, but most of your book is just, I'm going to walk through Bible and Bible and Bible. And so how does a book like that talk about the personal element of John, the life of John Piper on the ground uh, and how providence weaves into it?
2: Yeah i I've often said as we, as Noel and I face crises, it's great to be a Calvinist. <laughs> I mean we haven't used that code word it's not it's not of the essence, but how great is it to rest in the absolute sovereignty of God? How great is it? We live in a a troubled neighborhood, and we have for forty years and uh, Noel and I for years and years, we'd kneel down beside our bed. And we know the difference between a, a gunshot and a firecracker and a backfire. That's what you do. We, um, we've knelt down at our bed at night with four boys and then five when Talitha came along. And we've said, God, we commit ourselves to you tonight. Save us from sin, from Satan, from sickness, and from sabotage. Those four S's in that order. Of seriousness, sabotage—not the most serious sin—is most serious, and we just handed our lives over, and we slept pretty good most of <laughs> these forty years in that neighborhood. And that—that's uh, owing to a belief that God is in charge of our lives. We, we lock our doors at night, um, but I don't have a gun. <laughs> we we could tell the story out of it. <laughs> I used to—I used to say that. Joe Reed, I, I said, I've never had a gun in my house, I've never had a firearm in my house. And Joe Reed, he said, yes, you did,
1: because yes, I, live I, I lived in your house. I lived in your house. You can take the boy out of Texas. You can't take Texas out of the boy, right? So I, I, was, I was ready. I was ready to maybe. Yeah, be, I'm glad you didn't I, tell I, me. I was ready to be what, the answer to one of those prayers. That's right. If somebody broke in, I was going to be a, a, a tool in God's hand to deliver John well, Piper. Well, anyway,
2: we didn't go there, and we still don't go there, um, That's one, the the peace that passes all understanding that comes when you really believe that whatever happens to you, God is in control. I mean, which would you rather have, Satan or fate or God in control of your suffering, your suffering, your losses? And my answer is God, because God governs for good, John Piper's life. Prayer is, already already mentioned it. I think providence is the best news in the world for praying because you can actually ask him to do the impossible. Save my sons, save my daughter, save my wife, save this church, save the city. And and he, he says, nothing is too hard for me. I'm God. I can raise the dead. Whereas if he doesn't have the power to actually take the heart of stone out of a person, put the heart of flesh in, what are you going to ask him to do? Well, do the best you can. <laughs> and that's not a very great prayer. So I think prayer is empowered. It's not made a problem. It's made powerful. Something with evangelism. Mm-hmm. I mean, my, my I, I feel free as an evangelist because I don't do the decisive saving God does. My job is to speak it. Paul sends us to do the impossible, humanly impossible, and so we do. Uh, what else did you ask? You when, said, when, you about, when you think about prayer,
1: when you think about planning,
2: yeah, planning. So James four, right? I mean, come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go up to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and get gain. What is your life? It is a miss. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. You ought to say. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. (laughs) That's everything. That's right down to the details. So so what he's saying there is not don't don't plan. plan. He's saying plan your day, but do it humbly with a sense of submission. I'm going to go to Duluth and have a retreat with my wife on our anniversary. Well, no, you may not. Rather at least think and be of the disposition God rules that trip, God rules whether a tornado hits, God rules that and be okay with that. And and, and the next thing he says is if you don't speak that way, you're arrogant. Mm-hmm. I and mean, that, that kind of gives a moral twist to this theology, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Like if you resist the statement, if the Lord wills we will live and do this or that then you are in danger of being an arrogant person. So this theology ought to make us humble. Right. It doesn't always. Right. Because the human heart is deceitful beyond all things. And
1: And it underscores um, that bit about why it's so important to feel the weight and horror of sin. Like that's like the, hey, we're going to go to Duluth is such an ordinary human thing. Yeah. To do it with a kind of presumption that we decide whether we go or stay, and how long we stay, and what we do there, and yet the biblical writers look at that normal human attitude and say, "How arrogant do you have to be to say stuff like that? How dare you say something like that?" And and that's where it kind of pulls us up short and says, "Whoa, we we might be really outstep with reality
2: here." Re- exactly, and that that's the negative downside of it, namely, yeah. If, if, you're an arrogant person if you don't say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. I will brush my teeth if the Lord wills. I'll get home tonight at 9.30ish or 10 o'clock and go to bed if the Lord wills. I'm walking home tonight through Elliott Park neighborhood. If the Lord wills, I'll get home tonight. That's the negative side. The positive side is. And, and one of the things I, I want so much for this book to produce is a God-entranced worldview. In other words, I get to brush my teeth <laughs> to Jesus. I get to depend upon the power of God Almighty to raise my kids. I get to eat breakfast tomorrow morning. I mean, grape nuts at the bottom and shredded wheat and granola, my favorite food. I get to do that because God is merciful. God, 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 God. If, if you don't have a view of providence, you won't have a God-entranced world you you'll be a very naturalistic person who just goes through the motions just like everybody else in the world
1: and there's a way in which it, you know you you people might think if you believe in providence it makes god really distant and and the actual effect is it makes him unbelievably present
2: yeah it does in fact this more this evening on the way over I was reciting Psalm 25 to encourage me not to be intimidated by these cameras and saying uh, at one point that God is close to me. God is merciful to me. God will guide me. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. That's the that's the piece. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, which literally in the Hebrew is the secret counsels of the Lord. And so I just paused and I said, so you're going to share some of the secret counsels while I'm talking with Joe? Right? <laughs> you I will. Else. I will give you whatever you need. So, it, absolutely, he's near. He is. He's nearer than a brother. He's. He's. The, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He bought my body so he could inhabit it and give me inclinations and walk in in fellowship with him. That, yeah, that would be a sad thing if people inferred. Whoa, he's, he's in control of the universe, and he does. He, he weighs the—I forget what, what scholar it was or what the illusion was. It said he said he carries the universe in his pocket like a nut, <laughs> right.
1: and a peanut, yeah, and brings the universe it. out.
2: That's it. But, so you could, you could conclude from that, whoa, he's far away. But that would, that would just show our limited conceptuality right? because God is God. He's as close as he is far.
1: All right, last question, still on the personal, but I want to land it here. Um, Persevering in faith. So um, I've heard you say before things like, I go to bed and I pray, Lord, let me be a Christian in the morning. And I think sometimes people hear that and they think, oh, that's just Piperian or hyperbole. But I think you really mean that. Like the, that, that that when you say things like "God, I, I just want to wake up a Christian tomorrow," that there's a a sense of um, desperation that in order to be kept, God really has to keep you. So I'm asking, one is that true? And then, so talk about the perseverance element of how providence and your confidence that you will make it to the end, um, and and then maybe. As a part of that, um, you say in there the most important verse in the Bible and we haven't gone to this direction. So I wanted to bring this verse in and I think it will, I think you'll be able to connect them somehow, uh, is Romans eight 32, 30,
2: Romans yeah, 8, 32, right. you're right.
1: So Romans eight thirty two and perseverance and providence. Yeah.
2: Let me see if I can do it. Well, yes, it is right. Uh, Last night I woke up and my heart was beating harder than I thought it should. <laughs> like I could feel it. Like, and I lay there thinking, "Hmm, wonder why that is." And often I'll, I'll I sleep on my left side usually, I can, so I can easily go like this, feel, take my pulse. And now that I got a, one of these super watches that I wear, uh, which they made me take off for this movie, <laughs> um, I can actually see what my pulse is. And I look at it and I think. Every one of those could be the last. But that's really not what you're asking. You're asking not not whether I wake up in the morning, but will I wake up a Christian? And I suppose the reason this is big and precious to me and that right now one of my favorite songs is He Will Hold Me Fast um, is because I think Jude, at the end of his little book, manifests in his what is probably the greatest doxology in the Bible in terms of verbal magnificence. And it goes like this. uh, Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the throne, before the presence of his glory with great joy. To him be glory, majesty, dominion, authority, before all time now and forever that's a big doxology all of it celebrating one thing he keeps you keeps you from stumbling presents you blameless gives you everlasting great joy and it made him grope for reach for the biggest words imaginable he really felt it was amazing that he stayed a christian most people don't i do I say to people in conferences regularly, what makes you think you'll be a Christian tomorrow morning? Or better, tell me the reason why you think you'll wake up a Christian tomorrow morning. Most of them would just say, well, I've always been a Christian. I just That's not a good answer. God will wake you up a Christian or you won't wake up a Christian. So the providence of God to keep me is precious to me. And Jude, I think, expresses the preciousness of it as well as anybody does now the the link and and so i do pray it i mean i pray the promises of god i don't say well because it's promised you don't need to pray it i think we pray the promises and so i ask him to keep me cause me to hallow your name tomorrow give me as much life as will honor you tomorrow but don't let me fall don't let me fall away i just read in hosea last friday um It was about a king, and he said, he fell. The kings were falling, and still they did not honor you. I just thought, don't ever let that happen to me. Mm -hmm. Don't, Don't have to bring me down in order to try to get me to honor you. So, yeah, I pray for God's keeping all the time. I don't deserve God's keeping, and I don't deserve anything that I have. Why would I have any sense that I could count on it? And that's Romans 8.32. The reason Romans 8.32 is probably the most important verse in the Bible is because of the connection of all human experience into eternity with God's not sparing his son. I mean, these are two massive things. So he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. So that reality is... The eternal God has an eternal son whom he loves infinitely. And you can hear in the words, not spare, that it was costly for the father. And he gives him into the world and unto suffering and unto death for the sake of sinners. And the logical result is he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, a rhetorical question, Will he not with him freely give us all things? Now, there's several things that have to be solved there. Why, what's the answer to the question? He, the answer is, he will. He will. He will. This, that's the way rhetorical questions work. So you can state it like this. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all will most certainly give us all things with him. Then you've got to ask, what all things? Like, he took my ma. When I was 28, right? my granddaughter, what, what are these all things that he gives me? And you have to say, okay, where can I find the answer to that? The answer is, well, keep reading. And he says, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, as it is written, we are being killed all day long. Okay, he's giving me all things and I'm being killed all day long so it must not be comfort in this world prosperity in this world it could be a sword it could be distress it could be persecution it could be famine i may go without food it could be nakedness i go without clothing and it could be death so all that in the context tells you what all things does not have to mean cannot mean so all things then contextually would be go back to romans 8:28 he works all things together for your good for your good what that you might be conformed to the image of his son so everything I need to get me to glory so that God is glorified and my happiness is secured forever and ever which is which is the end point of this book I and mean, if you say well, what is the goal of providence in creation in redemption in consummation in new heavens and new earth with the bride of Christ and the son exalted in her midst the answer is God's grace glorified in his people's being eternally satisfied in him. I mean, I didn't plan for this to be a book about Christian hedonism, but I discovered in those two years that this thing I've been working on for 40 years is no peripheral thing. Christian hedonism, that God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him, is no peripheral thing. It's where everything is going. God will be glorified, and we will be satisfied, and everything is going to work to that end. Even, even the most horrible things.
1: That's great. Thank you, John, for this. Thank you for that book. I, I do believe it will help and bless many. I was deeply encouraged as I uh, read it, and so maybe would you pray now? for that book to do as much good as God wants it to do.
2: Thank you. What a privilege, Lord, to bow with many people, Lord, and I pray that they would be bowing with Joe and me to acknowledge that we are not God. You are God. We don't run the world. You run the world. We don't run our lives. You run our lives. We are Absolutely, utterly dependent upon you. And I ask, I ask, Lord, that you would cause those who consider what's in the book to be biblical in their response. I don't claim to be infallible. <clears throat> I want to point people to the book that is infallible and to the God who is infinitely worthy, beautiful, great, satisfying. Make that happen, Lord. May sinners be saved. May saints be strengthened. May missions advance. May churches be purified. Lord, glorify your great name in the gladness of your people, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Yeah, amen. Thank you for listening to this special long-form conversation between Pastor John and Dr. Joe Rigney. The book is now out. Providence. Look for it. And we are back with Pastor John in studio on Monday. We'll see you then.